1: up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. As a young child, we would go to camp meeting, and the 6.30 meeting was always started by that hymn, and I remember as a little boy standing there with the damp hymn book in my hand in that great auditorium. And everyone lifting their voice, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And that always lifted my heart. What I didn't know then, and it has taken me years to come to understand, is that I need the Holy Spirit to stand up for Jesus. That I can't stand up in just human flesh. I have to stand up in the spirit of the living God. Now, we didn't believe that in the church I was in as a child. But I've learned that. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra.
2: Welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
1: We want to share with you today another part of the story of Charles Finney I want you to hear this story if you've read it before you've heard it before listen as for the first time listen as though you were listening for the first time to the coming of the Holy Spirit in a man's life now you cannot compare your life with his but have you had the coming of the Holy Spirit in your life Or have you walked year after year in the energy and the power simply of the human heart? There's a passage of scripture I'd like to share with you as we begin. It's John, the 15th chapter. It's very familiar, but please listen again as though for the first time. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The greatest sadness of my heart is that I've never before understood the seriousness of this passage of Scripture. That without the full baptism of the Holy Spirit we cannot remain in Jesus. And if we do not remain in Jesus, we can't do anything. Oh we can make the, the church machinery grind on. We can talk with people, we can do our jobs. There's all kinds of things the human spirit and the human heart and the human energy can do, but it will not be lasting and it will not be fruitful for the kingdom of God. And so if you walk in sin today and you're trying with all of your heart to do something good for somebody, you will not be able to do anything at all for the kingdom of God. It means leaving your sin Being brought into Jesus, and then being filled with His Spirit. So, we're going to share the story again of Charles Finney as he made a decision that he would set his heart on finding God. He was not impressed by the church. He attended church regularly for several years, but saw that they had no power, and their lives did not reflect what he found in Scripture. So we begin today with his going into the woods. Alexandra?
2: Yes, and before I start reading, we're reading from Holy Spirit Revivals. It's Charles Finney's biography. And we're reading from Chapter 2, Conversion to Christ. And to be clear, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's not to be confused with conversion. So what you'll see in this story is Charles Finney... Was converted, his sins were forgiven, he had peace, he was no longer a sinner, and then a short time later, within a 24 hour period, he received that full baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Scripture. The disciples were baptized in water for the remission of their sins. They were Christians, they had already received a measure of the Holy Spirit. So they were already living a holy life, they had the influence of the Spirit in prayer. But they didn't have the full baptism of the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost, when the tongues of fire came and rested on their heads. They spoke with new tongues, and at that point, they were filled with power for ministry. And that's how just this handful of 120 people within a single generation were able to so radically transform the face of the earth, really, in terms of bringing so many people to Jesus— and really bringing Christianity onto the world stage. So I'll begin reading. This is from chapter two, conversion to Christ by Charles Finney in the book, Holy Spirit Revivals. North of the village and over a hill lay a stretch of woods in which I walked almost daily when the weather was pleasant. It was now the 10th of October and the time was past for my frequent walks there. Nevertheless, instead of going to the law office, I turned and bent my course toward the woods, feeling that I must be alone and away from all human eyes and ears so that I could pour out my prayer to God. But still, my pride showed itself. As I went over the hill, it occurred to me that someone might see me, and suppose that I was going away to pray. Yet there was probably not a person on earth who would have suspected such a thing had he seen me going. But so great was my pride, and so much was I possessed with the fear of man, that I skulked along the fence until I got so far out of sight that no one from the village could see me. I then made my way into the woods nearly a quarter of a mile, went over on the other side of the hill, and found a place where some large trees had fallen across each other, leaving an open place between. There I saw I could make a kind of closet." I crept into this place and knelt down for prayer. As I turned to go up into the woods, I recollect having said, I will give my heart to God or I never will come down from there. I recall repeating this as I went up. I will give my heart to God before I ever come down again. But when I attempted to pray, I found that my heart would not pray. I had supposed that if I could only be or I could speak aloud without being overheard, I would pray freely. But when I tried it, I was mute. I had nothing to say to God, or at least I could only say a few words, and those without heart. In attempting to pray, I would hear a rustling in the leaves and would stop and look up to see if somebody were coming. I did this several times. Finally, I found myself sinking fast to despair. I said to myself, I cannot pray. My heart is dead to God, and it will not pray. I then reproached myself for having promised to give my heart to God before I left the woods. When I tried, I found I could not give my heart to God. My soul hung back, and my heart was in no way going out to God. I began to feel deeply that it was too late, that I was past hope, and that God must have given up on me. I then began to think my promise rash, that I would give my heart to God that day, or die in the attempt it seemed to me as if that were binding upon my soul, and yet I was going to break my vow. A great discouragement came over me, and I felt almost too weak to get up on my knees. Just at this moment I again thought I heard someone approach me, and I opened my eyes to see whether it were so. But just then it was distinctly shown to me that my pride was the great difficulty that stood in the way." An overwhelming sense of my wickedness and being ashamed to have a human being see me on my knees before God took such powerful possession of me that I cried at the top of my voice and exclaimed that I would not leave that place if all the men on earth and all the devils in hell surrounded me. What, I said, such a degraded sinner as I am, on my knees, confessing my sins to the great and holy God, How can I be ashamed to have any human being, a sinner like myself, find me on my knees, endeavoring to make my peace with my offended God? The sin appeared awful, infinite. It broke me down before the Lord. Just at that point, this passage of scripture seemed to drop into my mind with a flood of light. Then you will pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek and me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, Jeremiah twenty nine twelve through thirteen. Somehow I knew that this was a passage of Scripture, though I do not think I had ever read it. I knew that it was God's word and God's voice that spoke to me. I instantly seized hold of this with all my heart. I had intellectually believed the Bible before. But never had I known that faith was a voluntary trust instead of an intellectual state. I was conscious of trusting at that moment in God's veracity. I cried to him, Lord, I take you at your word. You know that I am searching for you with all my heart and that I have come here to pray to you and you have promised to hear me. This seemed to confirm that I could indeed fulfill my vow that very day. The Spirit seemed to emphasize this idea in the words, When you search for me with all your heart. Verse 13. I told the Lord that I would take him at his word, that I knew he could not lie, and that I was therefore sure that he heard my prayer and that I would find him. He then gave me many other promises from both the Old and New Testaments, some regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. I never can in words make any human being understand how precious and true those promises appeared to me. I took them one after the other, as infallible truth, the assertions of God who cannot lie, Titus 1-2. They did not seem to fall into my intellect so much as into my heart, to be put within the grasp of the voluntary powers of my mind. I took hold of them and fastened upon them with the grasp of a drowning man." I continued to pray in this way, and to receive and take hold of promises for a long time. I do not know how long. I prayed until my mind became so full, that before I was aware of it, I was on my feet, and tripping up the hill toward the road. I did not really think about whether I had been converted. But as I went up, brushing through the leaves and bushes, I recollect saying, with great emphasis, if I am ever converted, I will preach the gospel.
1: I soon reached the road that led to the village, and I began to reflect on what had passed. I found that my mind had become wonderfully quiet and peaceful. I said to myself, What is this? I must have grieved the Holy Spirit entirely away. I've lost all my conviction. I don't have a particle of concern about my soul, and it must be that the Spirit has left me." Indeed, I never was so far from being concerned about my salvation in my life. And then I remembered what I had said to God while I was on my knees, that I would take him at his word. And so I recalled many things I had said, and I concluded that it was no wonder the Spirit had left me. I imagined that for such a presumption, if not blasphemy, I concluded that in my excitement I had grieved the Holy Spirit, "'and perhaps committed the unpardonable sin. "'I walked quietly toward the village, "'and so perfectly quiet was my mind "'that it seemed as if all nature listened. "'I'd gone into the woods immediately after an early breakfast, "'and when I returned to the village I found it was lunchtime, "'yet I'd been wholly unaware of the time that had passed. "'It appeared to me that I'd been gone from the village only a short time.' But how was I to account for the quiet of my mind? I tried to recall my convictions, to get back again the load of sin under which I had been laboring. But all sense of sin, all consciousness of present sin or guilt, had departed from me. I said to myself, What is this, that I cannot arouse any sense of guilt in my soul, as great a sinner as I am? I tried in vain to make myself anxious about my present state. I was so quiet and peaceful. I tried to feel concerned about it, lest it should be the result of my having grieved the spirit away, but no matter what view I took of it, I could not be anxious at all about my soul and my spiritual state. The repose of my mind was unmistakably great. I never can describe it in words. The thought of God was sweet to my mind, and the most profound spiritual tranquility had taken full possession of me. This was a great mystery. I went to lunch and found I had no appetite to eat. I then went to the office and found that Squire Wright had gone to lunch. I took down my brass uh, viola, and as I was accustomed to do, I began to play and sing some pieces of sacred music. But as soon as I began to sing those sacred words, I began to weep. It seemed as if my heart were all liquid and my feelings were in such a state that I could not hear my own voice in singing without causing my tears to overflow. I wondered at this and tried to hold back my tears, but could not. After trying in vain to suppress my tears... I put away my instrument and I stopped singing. After lunch, Squire Wright and I were engaged in moving our books and the furniture to another office. We were very busy in this and had little conversation all afternoon. My mind, however, remained in that profoundly tranquil state. There was a great sweetness and tenderness in my thoughts and feelings. Everything appeared to be going right. Nothing seemed to ruffle or disturb me in the least. Just before evening, I decided that as soon as I was left alone in the new office, I would try to pray again. That I was not going to abandon the subject of religion and give it up at any rate. Therefore, although I no longer had any concern for my soul, I would still continue to pray. By evening, we got the books and furniture all adjusted, and I made a good fire in the fireplace, hoping to spend the evening alone. And just at dark, Squire Wright, seeing that everything was adjusted, bade me good night and went home. I accompanied him to the door, and as soon as the door closed and I turned around, my heart seemed to be liquid within me. All of my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour out my whole soul to God. The rising of my soul was so great that I rushed into the room behind the front office to pray.
2: There was no fire and no light in that room. Nevertheless, it appeared perfectly lit to me. As I went in and shut the door after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It did not occur to me then, nor did it for some time afterward, that it was wholly a mental state. On the contrary, it seemed to me that I saw him as I would see any other man. He said nothing. "'but looked at me in such a manner as to break me down right at his feet. "'I have ever since regarded this as a most remarkable state of mind, "'for it seemed real to me that he stood before me, "'that I fell down at his feet and poured out my soul to him. "'I wept aloud like a child and made such confessions as I could "'with my choked utterance. "'It seemed to me that I bathed his feet with my tears.' but cannot recall that I had any distinct impression that I touched him. I must have continued in this state for a good while, but my mind was too much absorbed with the interview to recall anything that I said. Yet I know as soon as my mind became calm enough to break off from the interview, I returned to the front office and found that the fire I had made was nearly burned out. But as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Without any expectation of it, without ever having thought that there was any such thing for me, without any recollection that I had ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through me, Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love. I cannot express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recall distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was poured out in my heart. Romans five five. I wept aloud with joy and love, and I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart these waves came over me and over me, one after the other, until I cried out, I will die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear any more. Yet I had no fear of death. How long I continued in this state, with this baptism continuing, continuing to roll over me and go through me, I do not know. But I know it was late in the evening when a member of my choir, for I was the leader of the choir, came into the office to see me. He found me in the state of loud weeping, and said to me, Mr. Finney, what ails you? I could not answer him for some time. He then said, Are you in pain? I gathered myself up as best I could and replied, No, but so happy that I cannot live. He turned "'Left the office, and in a few minutes returned with one of the elders of the church, Elder B., "'whose shop was just across the way from our office. "'This elder was a very serious man, and I had scarcely ever seen him laugh. "'In my presence he had been very watchful. "'When he came in, I was still in a state of loud weeping. "'Elder B. asked me how I felt, and I began to tell him. "'Instead of saying anything, he fell into spasmodic laughter.' It seemed as if it were impossible for him to keep from laughing from the very bottom of his heart. There was a young man in the neighborhood who had been a close friend of mine. Our minister, as I afterward learned, had repeatedly talked with him on the subject of religion and had warned him against being misled by me. Mr. Gale informed him that I was very careless about religion, and he thought that if my friend associated much more with me, "'His mind would be diverted, and he would not be converted. "'After I was converted, my friend told me "'that he had said to Mr. Gale several times "'when he had admonished him about associating so much with me "'that my conversations had often affected him more religiously "'than his preaching. "'I had indeed shared my feelings a good deal with this young man. "'Just at the time, when I was giving an account of my feelings to Elder B, "'this young man came into the office.' I was sitting with my back toward the door and barely noticed that he came in. He listened with astonishment to what I was saying, and the first I knew, he partly fell upon the floor and cried out in the greatest agony of mind, Do pray for me! The elder of the church and the other member knelt down and began to pray for him, and when they had prayed, I prayed for him myself. Soon after this, they all left me alone. I then wondered, Why did Elder B. laugh so? Did he think that I was deluded or crazy? This thought brought a kind of darkness over my mind, and I began to ask myself whether it was proper for me, such a sinner as I had been, to pray for that young man. A cloud seemed to come over me. I felt I could not rest in anything. After a little while I retired to bed, not distressed in mind, but still at a loss as to what to make of my present state notwithstanding the baptism i had received my view was so obscured that i went to bed without feeling sure that my peace was made with god i soon fell asleep but almost as soon awoke again on account of the great flow of the love of god that was in my heart i was so filled with love that i could not sleep i fell asleep again and awoke in the same manner when i awoke this temptation toward unbelief returned upon me and the love that seemed to be in my heart abated. But as soon as I was asleep, it was so warm within me that I would immediately awake. Thus I continued until late at night I obtained some sound repose. When I awoke in the morning, the sun had arisen and was pouring a clear light into my room. Words cannot express the impression that the sunlight made upon me. Instantly, the baptism that I had received the night before returned upon me in the same manner. I rose to my knees in the bed and wept aloud with joy, remaining for some time too much overwhelmed with the baptism of the Spirit to do anything but pour out my soul to God. It seemed as if this morning's baptism was accompanied by a gentle reproof, and the Spirit seemed to say to me, Will you doubt? Will you doubt? I cried, No, I will not doubt, I cannot doubt. He then cleared the subject up so much that it was in fact impossible for me to doubt that the Spirit of God had taken possession of my soul. In this state I was taught that justification by faith is a present experience. I had never distinctly viewed this as a fundamental doctrine of the gospel. Indeed, I did not know at all what it meant in the proper sense. But I could now see and understand what was meant by the passage. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 I could see that from the moment I believed while up in the woods, all sense of condemnation had entirely dropped out of my mind, and I could not feel a sense of guilt or condemnation by any effort that I could make. My sins were gone, and my sense of guilt was gone as if I had never sinned. This was just the revelation that I needed. As far as I could see, I was in a state in which I did not sin. Instead of feeling that I was sinning all the time, my heart was so full of love that it overflowed. My cup ran over with blessing and with love, and I could not feel that I was sinning against God, nor could I recover the least sense of guilt for my past sins.
1: On that same morning, I went to the office And there I was experiencing the renewal of those mighty waves of love and salvation flowing over me. And when Squire Wright came into the office, I said a few words to him on the subject of his salvation. He looked at me with astonishment, but maybe made no reply. He dropped his head. After standing a few minutes, he left the office. I thought no more of it then, but afterward I found that the remark I had made it pierced him like a sword, and he did not recover from it until he was converted. Soon after, Squire Wright had left the office. Deacon B. came into the office and said to me, Mr. Finney, do you recall that my case is to be tried at ten o'clock this morning? I suppose you're ready? I had been retained to act as his attorney. I replied to him, Deacon B., I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause, and I cannot plead yours. He looked at me with astonishment and said, What do you mean? I told him, in a few words, that I had enlisted in the cause of Christ, and that he must go and get somebody else to attend his lawsuit. I could not do it. He dropped his head and went out without making any reply. A few moments later, in passing the window, I observed that Deacon B. was standing in the road, seemingly lost in deep meditation. He went away, as I afterward learned, and immediately settled his suit. He then committed himself to prayer and soon got into a much higher religious state than he'd ever seen before. I soon set out from the office to converse with all the people I could find about their souls. I had the impression, which has never left my mind, that God wanted me to preach the gospel and that I must begin immediately. I somehow seemed to know with certainty, beyond all doubt, that just as I knew that I had received the love of God and the baptism of the Spirit, I was called to preach. When I was first converted, the thought had occurred to me that if I ever was converted, I would have to leave my profession, of which I was very fond, and begin preaching the gospel. This at first was an obstacle to me. I thought I'd spent too much time and study in my profession to think now of becoming a Christian, if by doing so I would be obligated to preach the gospel. However, I at last came to the conclusion that I must submit to God, that I had never commenced the study of law out of any regard to God, and that I had no right to place any conditions on Him. I laid aside the thought of becoming a minister until the thought came to me, as I have related, on my way from my place of prayer in the woods. But now, after receiving the baptism of the Spirit, I was quite willing to preach the gospel. Indeed, I found that I was unwilling to do anything else. I no longer had any desire to practice law. Everything in that direction no longer had any attraction for me at all. I had no desire to make money. I had no hungering and thirsting after worldly pleasures and amusements at all. My whole mind was taken up with Jesus and his salvation. And worldly concerns seemed of very little consequence to me. Nothing, it seemed to me, could be put in competition with the worth of souls, and I thought no labor could be so sweet, and no employment so exalted, as that of holding up Christ to a dying world.
2: With this impression, I went forth to converse with anyone I might meet. I first dropped in at the shop of a shoemaker, who was a pious man and, in my estimation, one of the most praying Christians in the Church. I found him in conversation with a son of one of the elders of the church. This young man was defending universalism. Mr. W., the shoemaker, turned to me and said, Mr. Finney, what do you think of the argument of this young man? The young man then stated what he had been saying in defense of universalism. I was so ready with an answer that in a moment I was enabled to blow his argument to the wind. The young man saw at once that his argument was gone. And he rose up without making any reply, and went out suddenly. But soon I observed, as I stood in the middle of the room, that the young man, instead of going along the street, had climbed over the fence, and was heading straight across the fields toward the woods. I thought no more of it until evening, when the young man came out and appeared to be a bright convert, telling of his experience. He had gone into the woods, and there, so he said, had given his heart to God. I spoke with many people that day, and I believe the Spirit of God made lasting impressions on every one of them. I cannot remember one whom I spoke with who was not soon after converted. In the afternoon, I called at the house of a friend, where a young man lived who was employed in distilling whiskey. The family had heard that I had become a Christian, and as they were about to sit down to tea, "'They urged me to sit down and have tea with them. "'The man of the house and his wife were both people of faith, "'but the wife's sister, who was present, was unconverted. "'The young man who distilled whiskey, "'a distant relative of the family, "'was a rather outspoken and talkative universalist, "'a young man with a good deal of energy. "'I sat down with them to tea, "'and they requested me to ask a blessing. "'Though I had never before asked a blessing,' I did not hesitate a moment, but commenced to ask the blessing of God as we sat around the table. I had hardly begun before the state of these young people rose before my mind and excited so much compassion that I burst into weeping and was unable to proceed. Everyone around the table sat speechless for a short time while I continued to weep. Suddenly, the young man moved back from the table and rushed out of the room. He fled to his room Locked himself in, and was not seen again until the next morning, when he came out expressing a blessed hope in Christ. He had been for many years an able minister. He has been for many years an able minister of the gospel. In the course of the day, my conversion had created a good deal of astonishment in the village. In the evening, without any appointed time having been set that I could learn, I observed that the people were going to the place where they usually held their prayer meetings. I afterward learned that sometime before this, some members of the church had proposed to make me a subject of prayer. I also learned that Mr. Gale had discouraged them, saying that he did not believe I would ever be converted, because I was very much enlightened upon the subject of religion, but very much hardened. Furthermore, he said he was almost discouraged, that although I led the choir and taught the young people sacred music, they were so much under my influence that they would probably not can be converted, while I remained in Adams. After I was converted, I found that some of the wicked people in the town had hidden behind me. One man in particular, a Mr. C., who had a pious wife, had repeatedly said to her, "'If religion is true, why don't you convert Finney? If you Christians can convert Finney, I will believe in religion.'" When an old lawyer, by the name of M., living in Adams, heard that I had been converted, he said that it was all a hoax, that I was simply trying to see what I could make Christian people believe. However, with one consent, the people seemed to rush to the place of worship. I went there myself. The minister was there, along with nearly all the principal people in the village. No one seemed ready to open the meeting, but the house was packed to its utmost capacity, I did not wait for anybody, but arose and began saying that I then knew that religion was from God. I went on and told such parts of my experience as it seemed important for me to tell. This Mr. C., who had promised his wife that if I was converted, he would believe in religion, was present. Mr. M., the old lawyer, was also present. What the Lord enabled me to say seemed to take a wonderful hold upon the people. Mr. C. got up, "'pressed through the crowd, and went home, leaving his hat. "'Mr. M. also left and went home, saying I was crazy. "'He is in earnest,' said he. "'There is no mistake, but he is deranged. "'That is clear. "'As soon as I had finished speaking, "'Mr. Gale rose and made a confession. "'He confessed that he had discouraged the church "'when they had proposed to pray for me. "'He said also that when he had heard that day "'that I was converted,' He had promptly said that he did not believe it. He said he had no faith. He spoke in a very humble manner. I had never before prayed in public, but soon after Mr. Gale was through speaking, he called on me to pray. We had a wonderful meeting that evening, and from that day, we had a meeting every evening for a long time. The work spread on every side. As I had been a leader among the young people, I immediately set up a meeting for them, which they all attended. I gave up my time to labor for their conversion, and in a very wonderful manner the Lord blessed every effort that was made. They were converted one after another with great rapidity, and the work continued among them so that only one of them was left unconverted. The work spread among all classes of people and extended itself not only through the village, but also out of the village in every direction. My heart was so full that for more than a week I did not feel at all inclined to sleep or eat. I literally seemed to have meat to eat that the world knew nothing of. John 4, 32. My mind was overflowing with the love of God. I went on in this way for a good many days until I found that I must eat and sleep or I would become insane. From that point, I was more cautious in my labors, ate regularly, and slept as much as I could. The word of God had wonderful power. Every day I was surprised to find that a few words spoken to an individual would stick in his heart like an arrow. After a short time, I went to Henderson to visit my father. He was an unconverted man, and only one of the family, my youngest brother, had ever made a profession of faith. My father met me at the gate and said, "'How do you do, Charles?' I replied, "'I am well, father, body and soul,' But father, you are an old man. All your children are grown up and have left your house, and I never heard a prayer in my father's house. My father dropped his head, burst into tears, and replied, I know it, Charles. Come in and pray. We went in and engaged in prayer. My father and mother were greatly moved, and in a very short time they were both converted. I remained in that neighborhood for two or three days and conversed with as many people as I could. I think it was on the following Monday night that a monthly prayer meeting was held in Henderson. Despite having two small churches, the town was very much a moral waste, and at this time, religion was at a very low ebb. My youngest brother attended this monthly prayer meeting and afterward gave me an account of it. Because few people typically attended the meeting, it was held at a private house. A few of the members of the Baptist Church and a few Congregationalists were present. The deacon of the Congregational Church was a feeble old man by the name of M. He was quiet in his ways and had a good reputation for piety, but seldom said much to anyone upon the subject. He was present, and they called on him to lead the meeting. He read a passage of scripture according to their custom. They then sang a hymn, and deacon M. stood up behind his chair and led in prayer, The other people present, all of them professors of religion, knelt down around the room. My brother said that Deacon M. began to pray, as usual, in a low, feeble voice, but soon began to raise his voice, which became tremulous with emotion. He proceeded to pray with more and more earnestness, until soon he began to rise up on his toes and come down on his heels again and again, so that everyone could feel the jar in the room. He continued to raise his voice, rise up on his toes, and come down on his heels more emphatically each time. As the spirit of prayer led him onward, he began to raise his chair together with his heels and bring that down upon the floor, and soon he raised it a little higher and brought it down with still more emphasis. He continued to do this more and more, until he would bring the chair down as if he would break it to pieces." In the meantime, the believers who were on their knees began to groan, sigh, weep, and agonize in prayer. The deacon continued to struggle until he was nearly exhausted. When he ceased, no one in the room could get up from his knees. The people could only weep and confess and melt down before the Lord. From this meeting, the work of the Lord spread forth in every direction, all over the town. And thus it spread at that time from Adams as a center throughout nearly all the towns in the county. I have said that I was converted in a grove where I went to pray, and that Squire Wright, in whose office I studied law, was convicted that same day. Very soon after my conversion, several other cases of conversion occurred that were reported to have taken place under similar circumstances. That is, people went up into the grove to pray, and there they made their peace with God. When Squire Wright heard them tell their experiences, one after another in our meetings, he insisted that he could pray anywhere and that he was not going to go up into the woods to have the same story to tell that had been so often told. Although this was a thing entirely immaterial in itself, it was a point on which his pride had become committed. Therefore, he could not get into the kingdom of God in this state. I have since found a great many cases of this kind— where a sinner's pride of heart commits him to some question, perhaps something immaterial in itself. In all such cases, the dispute must be yielded, or the sinner will never get into the kingdom of God. I have known some people to remain for weeks in great tribulation of mind, pressed by the Spirit, but they could make no progress until the point upon which they were committed was yielded. After Squire Wright was converted, He said that he had been made to see that it was pride that had made him take that stand and had kept him out of the kingdom of God. Still, he had not been willing to admit this even to himself. He had tried in every way to make himself believe and to make God believe that he was not proud. One night he prayed all night in his parlor that God would have mercy on him, but in the morning he felt more distressed than ever. He finally became enraged that God did not hear his prayer, and was tempted to kill himself. He was so tempted to use his penknife for that purpose that he actually threw it as far as he could so that it might be lost and this temptation would not prevail. On another night, after returning from a meeting, he was pressed with a sense of his pride and with the fact that it prevented his going up into the woods to pray. He therefore looked around for a mud puddle in which to kneel down so that he might demonstrate that it was not pride that kept him from going into the woods. Thus he continued to struggle for several weeks. But one afternoon I was sitting in our office, in the company of two elders of the church, when the young man whom I had met at the shoemaker's shop came hastily into the office and exclaimed as he came, "'Squire Wright is converted!' I went up into the woods to pray, and I heard someone shouting very loud. I went up to the brow of the hill, where I could look down, and I saw Squire Wright pacing to and fro, singing as loud as he could sing." Every few moments he would stop, clap his hands with his full strength, and shout, "'I will rejoice in the God of my salvation!' Then he would march and sing again, and then stop, shout, and clap his hands. While the young man was telling us this, Squire Wright could be seen coming over the hill. As he came down to the foot of the hill, we observed that he met Father T., as we called him, an aged Methodist brother. He rushed up to him, and took him right up in his arms." After setting him down and conversing a moment, he came rapidly toward the office. When he came in, he was sweating profusely. He was a heavy man, and he cried out, "'I've got it! I've got it!' clapped his hands with all his might, fell to his knees, and began to give thanks to God. He then gave us an account of what had been passing in his mind and why he had not obtained a hope before. He said as soon as he gave up that point and went into the woods— his mind was relieved, and when he knelt down to pray, the Spirit of God came upon him and filled him with unspeakable joy. From that time, Squire Wright took a decided stand for God.
1: We're almost out of time. You know, I, as I listen to this story, it's so plain. The difference was the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in Charles Finney's life his words had no power until the Holy Spirit came in this wonderful baptism this Pentecost baptism do you need this baptism do your words have power Or are you compromised with sin? What kind of a man, what kind of a woman are you today? Do you know Jesus this way? What is your condition before God? Alexandra, do you want to share? What are your thoughts?
2: Uh, I recall reading another story of a young lady who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and she, it was very similar she just went and visited her friends and in one day I think 70 of them were converted and I think Finney said in another book he said that once you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit you'll see more people converted in a single day than you ever saw in your entire life and that's what—that's what that's what we're both praying for and what we've been praying for at the national prayer chapel is this full anointing of the holy spirit because we realize that we have very little success we all ha- we all have family members and friends people we love who we've spoken to about jesus and what's impressive about these stories is you know brother finney wasn't saying anything like particularly insightful or elegant, but what he said were just common things that were backed and filled with that power of the Spirit. And so that's that's what we need so that when we speak to the lost and to those in sin that there will be, as is described in these stories, these convictions and weepings and prayers.
1: So let's be very clear. Alexandra and I have no sense of Continued sin in our lives. We've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and we walk with that full assurance of His presence. But we have not received this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this Pentecost baptism, and we are seeking this with all of our hearts. This is what we must have that our words that our actions would be directed by the Holy Spirit? Now some of you may say, Oh, Pastor, well, I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Do you have evidence of that in the salvation of many people? When you speak, do people begin to weep and confess their sins? Many people have told me, oh, I have the full baptism of the Spirit, Pastor. What are you talking about? But I see no evidence in their lives that they have that baptism.
2: The other error you can run into, and I encountered this, I went to a a very large church in Washington, D.C., about a 1,000 members. And I went to a Bible study, and the elder was teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was only for the apostles to found the church, and to write the Bible. And now all we have is the Bible. But that's not true. As we see throughout history, the past 2,000 years, God has consistently poured out his Holy Spirit and power for those who would seek him. And that's what we mean when we talk about revival. We're talking about this indwelling Christ who comes in this Pentecost power to make us completely holy, to fill us with this overflowing love of God, and to give our witness the power, because Jesus said when we receive the Holy Spirit, we would be his witnesses.
1: We're going to take off next week. They will be rebroadcasts of the Argentine Revival. We're going to take off next week to just pray and rest and be in the presence of Jesus. Monday night, there will be a revival meeting at the All Saints Anglican Church. You can get that information by going to revivalnow.church revivalnow.church
2: Please also visit our webpage nationalprayerchapel.com You can listen to this message and our past messages there. That's nationalprayerchapel.com
1: God bless you, my brother and my sister. Join us in crying out for this full baptism of the Holy Spirit. We love you. We'll talk to you soon.
2: God bless you all. With
3: great joy. With great joy. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory.